welcome to the Director's Wall Season 2 Coppola cast. I am one of your co-hosts, AJ Gonzalez. And I'm one of your co-hosts, Brian Connolly. All right. And if we sound a little bit different, uh, because we are back to recording via Zoom, because uh, the Omicron is really, (laughs) really out there. And we live in Texas where it's really, really bad. (laughs) Yep. So we had a nice little moment of, of being together in the same room a few months. It felt like since the summer. I don't know. And now we're back to uh, being in our sad little offices, looking at each other on a computer screen. I'm drinking a Coppola Cabernet Sauvignon uh, 2018. We've covered this one before. Uh, I just have to go with whatever's at the store these days. I don't have time to really like go searching for the ones we haven't tried. That we maybe we've tried all of them by now. Like maybe not all the vintages, of course, but I think all the types of Coppola wine, at least that you can get in Texas, I feel we've done. I feel like we have, and if we haven't done them in our uh, in-person episodes, and we've definitely gone through them in our uh, you know, COVID era, quarantine, isolation, uh, you know, I don't care if it's less mild, I still don't want to get it era episodes. I'm drinking the Francis Coppola Diamond Collection Rosé of Pinot Noir. Have you Ooh, had this? Got maybe we haven't done that one. Oh, that, that, where'd you get that? Uh, my wife found this at Target. Oh, uh, many try that. Huh. Many many moons ago, uh, moon being a month, uh, <laughs> she like was at Target, saw they had a whole bunch of Coppola wine, and I've been hanging on to it. Uh, it's got a pink label, uh, 2019. The uh, back here says, since I don't think we've had this, at least not together. I don't I'll think read so. The no. Back. Uh, our Diamond Collection Rosé captures elegant rose petals, strawberries, and earthy minerality of Italian blood oranges on, on the nose. Minerality of Italian blood oranges on the nose. Juicy flavors of red berries and a hint of dried flowers fill the palate. The vibrant natural acidity elevates the aromatics, creating a bright, refreshing wine that is very versatile and versatile with food like chicken or oysters. Ooh, are you, do you have a plate of oysters also? I do not have a plate of oysters. <laughs> I have uh, only more wine. I, d- I don't have any <laughs> snacks with me. Uh, how, I thought this- how, how is it? Do you like rosé? I'm not a huge rosé fan. I do like rosé. I usually end up drinking rosé cider, though, which, depending on the brand, gives me a headache. It's like it gives me the hangover immediately after I drink the sparkling <laughs> fizzy can. Um, I, I like this. It's a, it's a good rosé. It's definitely, let's see, I don't want to say light in flavor, like the stuff they mentioned isn't there. But it, it's not very sweet, like some of the reds we said are even like like sweet. You can really get that flavor but the uh i don't know like it's um and like like that like a light light in like the airy sense and it's you know and it's pink and fun and it's probably something a grown-up zoe would have at her <laughs> at one of her parties <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right so uh working our way through coppola we have 
finally reached the end of the 80s. I know. It seems like we were in the 80s uh, for, for a while. Um, yeah, like the, 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 it seems like a long time ago that we did uh, one from the heart, you know? Yeah, and uh, we're, we're aware we do take forever to do episodes, so that probably has something to do with that feeling. <laughs> but also, I think just because the his filmography during this time was so like varied and wild, the projects were so like just kind of like unrelating to each other, like subject matter, genre wise, that it feels like, oh my god, it's so much. And then also he was producing. <clears throat> so much to pay off his massive debts so he had to do like a film every year and it was definitely like a, it's been a critical roller coaster not just from us but from everyone in general that when these movies came out and uh i think this is also marks the end before he's kind of truly has his comeback like i think he's about to really come back in a big way with the next few movies um at least it'd been Hollywood, you know, come back with a bigger, bigger things that people actually see and some actually like. So today we're talking about New York Stories, uh, released in February or early March of 1989. It's an anthology film or an omnibus film of uh, three short films, one by Martin Scorsese, one by Francis Coppola, and one by Woody Allen, all set in New York. Uh, the whole thing was uh, Woody Allen's idea. Originally, he had wanted to do a anthology film of his own stuff. And hit, one of his producers talked him into doing an anthology of uh, other filmmakers. Uh, Woody Allen immediately thought of bringing on, you guessed it, Fellini and Ingmar Bergman. <laughs> wow, that... All about New York? Yeah, I don't know. If, I don't think New York had entered into uh, entered into the uh, the theme of the film. In fact, I feel like that was the last thing yeah. about it. Because <laughs> so he wanted uh, Bergman and Fellini, and then uh, that would have been his, great. His producer. It's been like that uh, anthology of Poe stories, Spirits of the Dead. His producer or he and his producer together decided it should be uh, American directors because a, a multi-language anthology film would probably be a hard sell in America, especially since anthology films were not really uh, playing well commercially at that point, or if they ever did, I'm not sure they really had a heyday, except for maybe horror anthologies in the early 70s when the Amicus would do their Tales from the Crypt uh, style films. Mm -hmm. So then Martin Scorsese was the first other filmmaker he thought of. And then he decided, I, well, it's got to be either Bob Fosse or Mike Nichols. Oh, man. <laughs> but then it was decided that those two would have similar styles or themes to Scorsese and, and Allen. Hmm. Like Bob Fosse probably would have made another story about, uh, you know, a, a troubled artist that's mean to everybody. Because <laughs> he was a troubled artist that was yeah. mean to everybody. Kind of his thing. He'd be like, no, I'll do that story. I'll do that story. You do a different story, Scorsese. And maybe that would have been 
better for everybody, but we'll get into that later. Uh, they weren't available or weren't interested. So then the next filmmaker they thought of was, of course, Steven Spielberg. That's why I don't think New York had entered into the workings of this of this anthology film at this point. <laughs> I don't Spielberg, even think Spielberg has ever been to New York by 1989. <laughs> well, I mean, is there anybody more California West Coast like socks yeah. and sandals than Steven Spielberg? Yeah. Spielberg, though, was uh, busy with other projects because he's making, I think, always at this point. And he always has like 30 different projects he's trying to put together at one point. So then they settled on Francis Coppola, which was a good choice, a fine choice, and didn't have a style too much like Woody Allen or Scorsese. So he was a good fit right in the middle. And that's where his segment is. And the uh, first story is Life Lessons, uh, the Scorsese one, which is stars Nick Nolte as uh, an artist in New York, of course. And like, you know, he has a big studio gallery that you have to apartment you have to take like a weird like freight elevator to get to and his style is like uh kind of jackson pollock abstract you know he's like just like throwing paint on the canvas and he has a big show coming up but it's uh you know he's having trouble finding inspiration and until his sort of girlfriend protege muse uh, Rosanna Arquette comes back to uh, live with him and be his assistant, but he's also trying to like win her back. And it doesn't go well because he's just being kind of mean to everybody. And when, uh, you know, whenever he's, she rejects him and he gets frustrated, that's when he makes his like the best art. And also, uh, she has a crush on Steve Buscemi, who plays a performance artist. And in the end, he gets into a fight with Steve Buscemi at a restaurant and pushes him through like a glass partition. <laughs> and Rosanna Arquette leaves him. He has his show and it's a success. And then he meets another young uh, female artist who like, you know, looks up to him and he's like, oh, you should be my new assistant. <clears throat> and that's life lessons. We'll dig into that more later. Up next is Francis Coppola's slash Sofia Coppola's Life Without Zoe, uh, which is narrated by a 12-year-old Heather McComb playing Zoe. And she is the, a rich girl. Her dad is a famous, world-famous flautist, flute player. And so he's always touring all over the world playing his flutes. Her mother is, I think, in fashion. And so she's always away. So she is essentially like raised by her guardian is her butler played by, what's it? Played That's by a father Bar Guido Sarducci again. What's his name? Don Novello. Don Novello. Yeah, Don Novello. It's about her living on her own in this, in she lives in a hotel. It's basically like a, an update, a modernization or a take on Eloise at the Plaza. And there's a lot going on in this short film, and it's the shortest of the three. Uh, she meets the like uh, the nephew of a, uh, a rich like Middle Eastern uh, sheik or sheikh, 
and there's also a a jewel a jewelry robbery and she has to get a rare diamond back to the the sheik's wife so that way her mother won't think her father was having an affair and she can get her parents back together and also uh she helps the uh uh, the rich Arab boy, like, have a party and make friends. And it's just, it, it's a kid's story. It, it, this is a children's story in the middle of two, like, grown-up New York stories. Uh, it's weird. Uh, it's weird, but it's, it's got its own charm to it. But it's always uh, derided among the three. Uh, next is Woody Allen's Oedipus Rex. Uh, Rex being spelled like, uh, W-R-E-C-K-S, like to, to ruin things. And he plays a 50-year-old lawyer who's getting married to, uh, to Mia Farrow, who is already has kids. And his mother is basically like the stereotype of a overbearing Jewish mother. And uh, she is played by Mae Questel. Yeah, make Questel the voice of Betty Boop, and uh, she's just like overbearing, ruining his life. She she turns up uh, at his law practice and interrupts him in the middle of a meeting to tell him <laughs> that she saw cats, <laughs> and then he takes her uh, to go see uh, uh, a, a, ma- a magician show, a Chinese uh, magician, but he's not really a Chinese magician he gets uh his mother as a volunteer to go inside the the box with the with the swords and then and spoiler on all of the stories but especially this one because it goes in a really weird direction so if you are curious about that go watch all these little films then come back she goes into the chinese box and disappears literally disappears they can't find her larry david is a stagehand (laughs) with the wildest hair Hmm. he's already bald but still has wild wild hair that's a 40 year old larry david he's a year younger than me so that makes me feel pretty good with how i look at age 41 yeah he he looks much older than a 40 year old (laughs) there and this is the second time larry david worked with woody allen he was in radio days before this huh. as i think he plays like the communist neighbor is that right and, and then many years later they do whatever works so who'd have thought that he was the richest person in this movie <laughs> right that that character in this movie like that out of all the people in this movie has the most money and the most success now in 2022 yeah it's a crazy world of <laughs> uh- his mother straight up disappears and then his life gets so much better. He enjoys everything so much more until she reappears in the sky above New York city. Just like her floating head (laughs) is above in New York city. And she's just talking to everybody. And now she's been an overbearing Jewish mother to about him, but to all 8 million people in New York, telling everyone about his problems and how he's going to marry this woman. Why does he need to get married for? He uh, goes to his his therapist who recommends that uh, maybe a medium can do something 
for him. The medium is played by Julie Kavner. Yeah, Marge Simpson. And she, of course, is a phony medium. But a lot of the rituals and things she does are ridiculous and and very funny. And then uh, over the course of him working, doing the crazy rituals with her, he falls in love with her. And she is uh, not stereotypically Jewish, but she's like a, 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 like a, a nice Jewish girl that his mother would want him to settle down with. And then once he falls in love with her, then his mother comes down from the sky and she's just there in the apartment and things are like good for them now. Uh, <laughs> and that's the end of, of the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, good job. You, you had a hard task describing basically three movies. Uh, yeah. so, so I think we should talk about the two non-Coppola ones first and then put all our attention on the Coppola one. I think that even though the order of the movies isn't that way, though it's funny, uh, the version I got to watch, I borrowed from my uh, boss at the Austin Film Society and I'm watching it and it cuts from the Scorsese one to the Woody Allen one and I'm like, wait, Come that's, on. Order? that's not right and he they totally he cut it out or whoever gave the dv cut that segment out and the movie was just the two without the couple segment they did a fan recut so much and that was like that's the whole reason why i borrowed this is for the watch the couple one uh and interesting enough when this was released internationally the order was totally different and it started with the couple one first then the woody allen one and ended on the scorsese one so that way, it's almost like to me, it felt like the kids matinee, then you make the kids leave somewhere in the middle of the Woody Allen one, and then only growing up stay for the Scorsese one. I think that's uh, the better order for these, honestly. I think so, too. I think that would have been, well, yeah, I think that would have been, because in my opinion, that's from worst to best. <clears throat> and the movie gets better as it goes along, but then maybe that's not good for people that don't like the Coppola one, which is most people, and they wouldn't sit through it long enough to get to the other two and also the, the 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 scorsese one is such kind of a bummer that maybe it's better that the original version ends on the woody allen more lighthearted, fun funny ending with a nice little end than like shitty nick nolte just perpetuating his shitty cycle of abuse but <laughs> the the character that he plays yeah uh but uh yeah i don't know it's it's so like let's talk about the uh Scorsese one first and then I think then when we're done with everything we'll talk about the movie in general as, as a whole and if it works or not uh, what's interesting is that uh, the Siskel and Ebert episode where they review and we'll talk about this later they reviewed each short as its individual thing and gave a thumbs up thumbs down for each segment and not as the movie as a whole yeah that was interesting I, I did watch that episode of uh, Siskel and Ebert last night available at uh, siskelebert.org. We're yeah. not affiliated with them. Just if you want to watch old Siskel and Ebert episodes, that's a place to, to do it. Great website. You're well, we doing, can talk up, yeah. You're doing good work there, whoever runs that website. Well, we'll talk uh, about their opinion after we give our opinion. We'll, we'll, we'll get there as we often do eventually. I'll say there is no real connectivity between these stories. New York City. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> tell you how the world is wrong the world is wrong about 
Bad Dog Time, The Paper Boy, Mordecai, after last season. The World is Wrong is an extremely positive podcast where Andros Jones and Brian Connolly champion films the world is wrong about. Available on Paperhouse Network wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> so let's start with Life Lessons, directed by Mark Scorsese, written by the great Richard Price, um, starring uh, Nick Nolte as the artist and Roseanne Arquette as his assistant, muse, protege, uh, and Steve Buscemi. So uh, th- this is my favorite part of this movie. It's one of my favorite things Scorsese's ever done. Like I really have, like I saw this movie at a very young age. Like I think I got it from my public library as I watched most grown up movies when I was a kid. Uh, when I was like 13 or something, I got this movie and I was so into this thing because just like, I mean, it didn't, it's weird. Like as a younger person, it didn't, it didn't read right away that he is a terrible human being <laughs> or a very <laughs> difficult person. I was just mesmerized by the scenes of him painting. And I don't think that painting has ever been shown quite in this way in a movie before. And I just love what, like I just can't, I can watch this over and over again. Just watch just like the gobs of paint that Nick Nolte's characters thrown on the canvas and like the camera gets really into it. So you can really see the texture of it. And just the older I get, and like, I am also a painter. And a lot of the inspiration from being a painter is, I think, from this short for me, because it just kind of glamorizes it in a weird way. It kind of gives you the tortured artist. And it's a little bit romantic, even though he's a piece of shit, <laughs> kind of. And just him using, like, the garbage pail as his uh, his, his uh, palette and just, like, all the shots. Like, it is Scorsese, so the camera is, like, moving across the canvas and all over the place. So the process of him building this art uh, isn't I, I find it very very enthralling and just it's fascinating and just fantastic. Those parts. Yes. Yeah, so this is usually the one that is uh, like everyone's favorite. This is the best one. This is one that I am a bit conflicted by because stylistically I love this. I love the way it is made. I love the way it, it's shot. The way it's edited. It's all fucking marvelous. It's like, and then so the year after this, Scorsese makes Goodfellas, and it makes sense. Like, of course, of course, he he makes one of the greatest American movies. Like, yeah, th- this is like comes from that same same period. But I don't really like the story or the characters more than even like, like oh, it's like it's about like a you know a, a, a shitty guy. Like, does this uh, you know being an artist like does it justify his uh, you know, his moods, his attitudes towards people, uh, you know, is it like a character study about that kind of personality, but like just the whole like artist muse thing, like, I mean, I don't know if I would have felt this at the time in 1989, but it, that territory has been covered, right? Like I, I know about this kind of dynamic and I've seen this kind of personality before. Yeah. And it's not really presented in a new way but the the style in which it is made feels so alive. I love that <laughs> the the way the it's shot by Nestor Alamendros, who is a great cinematographer. He shot Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven, one of the best. Oh my god, it moves so well! Like the camera like glides, and 
his his style it's abstract but he he uses a brush like Jackson Pollock would just drip the paint on the canvas he has the canvas upright and yeah he's using a brush and the way it moves the brush moves across the camera I'm sorry the way the camera moves with the brush across the canvas and the paint is so like thick it reminds you of Van Gogh yeah uh, I, I I love all of that stuff and he uses Irish shots a lot a lot yeah yeah it's just like you're always always there with the characters and the camera work. It it enhances the story because it puts you in the same like uh, emotions that that the characters are feeling, that the same like energy that yeah. that they have, both Nick Nolte and Rosanna Arquette. And it's never yeah. just style for style's sake. Every camera move serves a uh, serves a purpose and it helps advance the yeah. story emotionally. Even if you're not invested in the characters, you're you still feel what they're feeling. And I, I, I love that. And the way uh, the uh, pop music is, he uses that. Again, it's not just a bunch of needle drops. It's like really worked in there. Well, well I like too, it's, it's a lot of the music, the bulk of it is from the cassette deck that Nick Nolte's character is playing. Like he has this paint splattered cassette deck where he's putting these tapes in whenever he paints and, a lot, and he plays a lot of the same songs. So he's playing like you hear wider. If you don't like the song "Wider Shade of Pale," you're not gonna like this because you're gonna hear it about a million times <laughs> as he plays. And or you get uh, uh, Bob Dylan and the band doing their the version of uh, like a Rolling Stone, and uh, and it's just it's just really fun. And like and it's the way it sounds. It sounds like how it would sound from a boombox playing in this giant loft. And like that, I, there's something about this movie that's just so romantic to me uh, of just like this life of like being in mid 80s New York, living in this big loft, these big paintings, you're just spending your days just throwing paint all over it, like living this true artist life where you're doing that and you're drinking wine at night or sometimes at the same time. And uh, I don't know, I just like when I was a kid watching it, I was just like, I want this life. I want to live in New York in 1987. 88 and live in this big loft and just like make art all day and just like listen to some tapes of the music I think is cool and you live with some pretty lady and if there's a way to do that with all the difficult emotions which maybe not <laughs> it very... and what's interesting is so the the paintings in this movie are from a real artist named Chuck Connolly surprisingly not spelled the same way he spells it with an e and the story itself is based on him like uh Richard Price uh, based this this script on his life. I guess he is a difficult uh, artist. Uh, this loft is actually his loft. They filmed in his actual artist loft. That's why it feels very uh, lived in and very real. Like that's not a set. That's the artist's actual place <laughs> where he makes the art. And I guess I read that Scorsese loved his paintings and wanted to put the movie and Richard Price loved it. And so after the movie, Scorsese was gonna go and really promote this artist and try to get people to buy his paintings for millions of dollars. And then Chuck Connolly saw the movie and hated it and thought it was just some garbage and very openly and publicly talked about how he thought the movie was dumb. And then Scorsese was like, yeah, fuck you. I'm not going to help you sell your paintings. <laughs> <laughs> and he's sort of in that world, that eighties era of like Julian Schnabel, Schnabel, however you say his name. And the art is kind of similar in that way. And if you see the documentary about Schnabel, Schnabel, uh, it's kind of, there's also similarities to I think Nick Nolte to him sort of like difficult bearded New York artist making this kind of abstract art and it's and the paintings aren't exactly like Jackson Pollock there is 
some shapes and forms and there's a part there's of the faces in there faces and things and it really is beautiful art and i would love to find out if the painting nick nolte does in this movie is an actual painting by chuck Connolly, and where can i go see it like what art gallery is it in to see that in person would be because i love how the movie starts with like the blank canvas it's huge the big big painting like cute like i don't even know like maybe like 10 feet tall and 20 feet wide and <laughs> something like that. And I love that you see just like the little marks at first. And then throughout the 30, 40 minutes of this of the movie, you get you get adds all the layers to it. And then finally at the very end, it's hanging in the art gallery with all the other pieces. Um, I think this is maybe the best movie about a painter ever. Like I can't think of another one. Like there's what imitation of or what's it what's the van gogh kirk douglas one called lust for life or? lust for life yeah. there's that i think basquiat's a fucking great movie but there's not a lot of like really saw i've never saw pollock i haven't seen the willem dafoe movie where he plays van gogh uh, <clears throat> at yeah. eternity's gate or something like that the only the film this reminded me of was a french film called la belle noiseuse mm-hmm but that movie, that movie is four hours long. I mean, it's long. I mean, it is a, an, an actual true four hours. It's on two DVDs. And it's about an old French painter. He's retired. And then someone comes to visit him and brings his beautiful girlfriend. And he's then suddenly inspired to paint. And he's painting and she's, uh, she's nude like the whole time. But there's nothing really sexual about it you see all the strokes that he does and the way his, his brush his like charcoal pen moves, uh, moves across. And you, it's really about the process of creating. And there's the whole like artist model thing, though they don't really ever like uh, get into uh, loggerheads. There's no big like monologue dialogues at each other. It, it's all there, like below the surface. Life lessons reminded me of, of this film and its approach to trying to capture how, trying to capture the process of putting art on on a canvas and make it like lively, but then also capture the emotion that goes into it. It's directed by Jacques Rivette. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, Rivette. And uh, uh, the, the woman, the model is Emmanuel Baird. Yeah, oh, okay, I need to watch that. I remember seeing the box at Vulcan, but I never, never saw it but now four hours long i love me a good four hour long <laughs> but we're talking about this 40 minute segment <laughs> uh the acting of course like with any scorsese thing is sort of like the highlight of this apart from the style and i think nick nolte is great he's just perfect as sort of this mad drunk abusive you know difficult <laughs> artist this gravelly voice and uh, the dialogue, the Richard Price dialogue is just so good. It's, I think it's a very well-written thing, and as is all Richard Price things. And I get the, the Steve Buscemi who plays a performance artist, and it's funny to see him so young looking, but I guess he wrote that himself. I guess Steve Buscemi wrote that, and he <laughs> was sort of a performance artist in, in like before he was an actor, or when they early as an actor, I guess he did sort of some performance art similar to that. So that was something that he actually came up with for this movie, which is which is great. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, his performance art is basically like this, like pseudo comedy or quasi comedy monologue. 
Yeah. Um, and then uh, when he's done, a, a light above him uh, breaks. Or, yeah, breaks. <laughs> Did you see? Uh, you can see Debbie Harry at the party post. Yeah, saw Debbie thing. Harry. Uh, I guess Peter Gabriel's in this movie. Did you see him? I don't know where he would be in this, but I didn't catch him. I didn't catch Peter Gabriel. I imagine he was probably in the same cameo space that Scorsese himself was uh, at the opening night of uh, Nick Nolte's gallery show. There's a series (laughs) of like black and white photos like him with all these people in tuxedos. And one of them is Scorsese. I guess Michael Powell is also one. one of those people too. Huh. I didn't know Michael Powell was in this. Uh, Ileana Douglas has a small part in this. And she was this when she was dating Scorsese? Uh, yeah, it's hard to tell because Scorsese may or may not have still been married at the time to Barbara Defina, who it produced this and then also produced Goodfellas. And but he was I mean, he definitely did uh, date. They were an item uh, at some point in the 90s that was kind of hard to pin down when that started <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's like yeah she's in new york stories and then in goodfellas and then in cape fear yeah yeah um and then uh what's interesting there's an actor who's the only one who's in all three segments paul herman not a well-known actor but you know his face he plays the cop in this segment that nick nolte tries to kiss uh. on a dare and he was in uh, Goodfellas. He's, he was actually in, before this, a Woody Allen movie, a Scorsese movie, and a couple movie before this movie came out. And so clearly, I don't know whose idea it was, but someone was like, we need to get Paul Herman to be in. And I just, I've been watching The Sopranos, and he's great in that. He plays the character who uh, gets his legs broken, and he's in the wheelchair through the rest of the, uh, the show. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah, Paul Herman is is in all three, and we'll talk about who he is in all of them. But like before this, he was in Color of Money and Last Temptation of Christ. He was in the Cotton Club, and he's in Purple Rose of Cairo and Radio Day. So maybe they all were like, this guy, or maybe he tried out for the one, and they're like, oh, we love him. Let's put him in all of them. And he gets the honor of being the actor in all three segments. For a very brief moment for all three, like not a big part in either of them, but I think that's pretty, um, that's pretty funny. (laughs) And no significance to that. It's not like that same guy that shows up in all of the Decalogue episodes and you're like, is that God? (laughs) I mean, maybe they're like, he's just very New York. He just has this sort of like, you know. I mean, yeah, he's got New York vibe. (laughs) I never questioned him in any of those of those uh, roles wait uh, this guy doesn't belong here uh i was really excited to see nick nolte smoke in an airport and not just smoke at an airport but put out his cigarette in the carpet of the airport can't do that anymore <laughs> yeah god he's also waiting right there at the gate for rosanna arquette when she comes off the plane this is at the very beginning of the short yeah. film He's just waiting there and he picks her up like right there. And you you can't, yeah, you can't do that anymore. Thanks for nothing, Osama bin Laden. Yeah. <laughs> can't smoke <laughs> by the gate anymore and put my cigarette out. Jeez. <laughs> and what's great, what I really like about this is, is like 
it's a Scorsese movie, not about violent Italian Americans in New York City, like he, he had been known for, but it's about an artist. And I think it's interesting, and we should do this with all three of these people to kind of see where this is placed in their filmography, like where they were in their careers in a way. And what I think out of all three of them, in my opinion, Scorsese is the most interesting place in his in his career. Because like the 80s for him is sort of a weird decade. Like the 70s, he clearly was like rising as this great filmmaker doing like Mean, mean Streets and Taxi Driver and Elf Doesn't Live Here Anymore. And then he kind of ends with, uh, with Raging Bull or begins the 80s with Raging Bull. But then after Raging Bull, he does a lot of New York movies or very not New York movies. And they all kind of feel smaller and not with... Uh, you know the the, the, the Italian Americans that he used to, other than King of Comedy, which he did right after Raging Bull, which is a smaller movie than Raging Bull, starring Robert De Niro and Sandra Bernhardt and Jerry Lewis. But then he does After Hours in '85, and that's a movie that's sort of the same world as Life Lessons. It's it, that's that's uh, Soho. Is that the name of that part of town? Yeah, I think? yeah. And South it's just all the artists. And it's like mid eighties, New York, when there was still crime and the bad part of town where the artists live. And it's just, that also is in a lot of lofts. And that movie, if no one's seen that movie, that movie is great. Like that is- it, it, It's a one crazy favorite. night uh, story. Crazy it all night takes movie. place like over one yeah. crazy night. <laughs> but it's Griffin Dunn basically going from like one loft to one nightclub to one late night diner after another, trying to get home. And most of the people he hangs out with are artists. Like the first place he goes to is Roseanne Arquette again. So that the first time she worked with Scorsese, her and her roommate who makes these uh, sort of plaster sculptures and they live in this big, uh, you know, lofty thing. And then later in the end of the movie, Griffin Dunn meets a sculpture artist uh, who uh, is, is making the like the, make, make basically he makes him into the art piece to help him escape the Soho district and so he's kind of in this sort of New York uh, artist world already in 85 he takes a weird break with Color of Money the sequel to The Hustler a sequel that no one asked for and no one expected but that movie's great uh, Paul Newman coming back as his character from The Hustler but with Tom Cruise love that movie and then he directs Michael Jackson's Bad, which is sort of gritty New York, a lot in the subway, it takes place in the subway. And then he follows it with Last Temptation of Christ. You couldn't get less New York, except for Harvey Keitel's accent. Jesus, what are you doing? <laughs> and he is speaking to Jesus. Because he plays what Judas, doing. right? Great. I, I love that movie so much. Me, and me I am, too. Uh, I am quite too. Catholic, and I love it. <laughs> speaks more to my faith than any of these other christian movies i i agree i totally agree i've always felt that and then he goes back to new york with new york stories and then like you said right after that he goes into goodfellas so like this movie's 89 so that means when this movie was out he was already in pre-production slash probably filming goodfellas and then of course after that it's just scorsese being great in the 90s you know and uh I know this, this is him being, I think, even more stylish than normal, which is I also agree. what Goodfellas is like, kind of like he kind of his style, like King of Comedy, like he always has his style, but King of Comedy definitely is less stylish than Raging Bull. 
And then, like, uh, Last Temptation of Christ. I mean, they all movies have style, but, like, the, the camera trickery isn't as apparent in, in like, Color of Money or Temptation. So New York Stories is back to him being, like, really obviously drawing your attention to um, all the different, you know, camera, like, what the camera is doing and letting you really under, like, see, like, oh, this is a camera, like, this is an obvious stylistic choice, which Goodfellas has so much of, you know. Uh, that kind of energy it, mm-hmm. it it's like the the uh the last day as a gangster segment from goodfellas like just kind of like moving and and like i said like the the camera work the whole like filmmaking <laughs> style the approach the editing everything the acting puts you in that character's place so if you've never been strung out on cocaine while dealing with the stress of trying to do a drug deal and trying to do a mafia deal and trying to like cook the uh, the sauce <laughs> and pick up your brother and all this stuff. If you've never been there, you you still feel it. And then also there's the yeah. fucking helicopter following you around. Like, what is that? <laughs> it, it's the same kind of approach. Like, and it's not as manic or frantic as that, but it's like just the energy mm-hmm. of like, I'm in, now I'm inspired and like the paint that just flies off of. Yeah the brush and onto the canvas <laughs> it's it's that that same style like it's so like obviously Scorsese's yeah. uh, aesthetic his his visual style his approach when he decides to really lean into that and it makes me think of Truffaut and Godard the way they used Irish shots and the way they moved the camera and how <laughs> revolutionary that was and how yeah. Scorsese's aesthetic is basically he's and Coppola also got you know also started in the late 60s their aesthetic was this french new wave style the american version of the french new wave which is what the new hollywood was and if, funny enough godard said in an interview that this was his favorite short film of all time he, he mm-hmm. loved life lessons so much that he was like that's the greatest short film i've ever seen i don't know if he's changed his mind since then but, but uh, and godard's hard to impress he doesn't yeah. like most things <laughs> Uh, all right well is there anything else on that one until we we move on to skip ahead to uh oity puss the only thing i'd want to comment on is this is late 80s early 90s this is when nick nolte was the sexiest man alive like that (laughs) era if it's if it's hard for anyone that wasn't uh watching movies at that time to imagine like well why is you know, this young, beautiful, like 20 something, like just obsessed with this, you know, gruff, older, older <laughs> artist played by Nick Nolte. Like, yeah, there was this time when he was considered this very beautiful man. He was the sexiest man alive, like multiple years, maybe. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I'm not sure. It's, but I want to say at least through right after Prince of Tides. Yeah, this is that that era. So it's like, well, yeah, of course she's gonna, you know, she wants to, <laughs> you know, hang around with him, even though he's got this this beard, uh, kind of like kind of like Wolfmanny uh, look he's got. It just gives us all hope that there's a world where Roseanne Arquette has to choose between Steve Buscemi or Nick Nolte. <laughs> Let's skip ahead. We're gonna skip over the Coppola one and go to the Woody Allen one, Oedipus rex or oedipus rex depending on which english class he took um (laughs) uh, 
And this was a big deal because this was Woody Allen doing a comedy. And at the time he was sort of not doing people, a lot of people were complaining that he should be funny again because he had been kind of getting into drama, making very dramatic movies and not doing his normal funny stuff. Yeah, um, or even the movies I, I'm like, what do you, like, that's something I read in Roger Ebert's review that this was Woody Allen's first all out comedy since Broadway Danny Rose. I don't, I don't, I disagree. Is I disagree it as well. Is Cairo a comedy? What else is that? I mean, yes, there's like, well, Purple Rose in Cairo it. is like, it has one of the great, like, depressing but satisfying endings of but movies. A, but it's a comedy. It may have be sad. And what is Radio Days? Isn't Radio Days a comedy? Ra- I think of Radio Days as yeah. a comedy. I, yeah, it, Radio Days is great. Hannah and Her Sisters is. That's a comedy. <laughs> it's a comedy. Maybe because that was like, that was the big, a big uh, Oscar movie that year. And, you know, um, if the Oscars are into it, then it's like not really a comedy. But it's, this... just, it's just like they're, they're, but they're not like interiors. Like interiors is a straight up not comedy. There are no laughs in interiors. <laughs> that is a slog to get through. But, but like he has done like always mostly comedies. And so like right before, so let's talk about where he was at in his career before we go into this. I just want to say, like, he started out, like, super broad comedies, not just, like, he yeah. making romantic comedies like Annie the Hall. Silliest, slapsticky. Yeah, like, if you compare Annie Hall to, like, Take the Money and Run or Sleeper, like, Annie Hall is the more subdued, uh, like, you know, mainstream style yeah. comedy for all it, it's, like, uh, broad diversions and daydreams and stuff. But, like, yeah, he was doing, like, wacky wacky broad comedies silly comedies <laughs> so maybe because he went so broad when people watch purple rosa cairo they think it's a drama <laughs> but yeah but if anyone else had made those movies that's a comedy comedies can be human and have emotion and still be a comedy that's ridiculous i mean well like you said interiors not a comedy but and i think maybe because around this time so the he out of all the three filmmakers in this movie he was the most, I think, on the most successful trajectory in a way. Like his 80s stuff was so critically loved, winning Oscars for best screenplay, like like the talk of the town, uh, you know, like, and then right before this, he did two dramas. I think maybe that's why in the people's minds, he did September and Another Woman, not, not comedies. <laughs> and then he did New York Stories. The same year, he did crimes and misdemeanors, which I consider a comedy. Like there is drama in there, but I mean, there's also really, really like, like that movie is the Martin Lando stuff is a drama where it's him kind of with a murder and his wife. And then the Woody Allen stuff is hilarious. Him trying to make this movie with Alan Alda. If Woody Allen was not on the director's wall and I was managing Vulcan, I guess I would put crimes and misdemeanors in comedy. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. I would Despite... put I mean I would put Broadway Danny Rose, Purple Rosa Cairo, Hannah and Sisters, Radio Days, and Crimes and Misdemeanors all in comedy. And September Another Woman, sure. Those go in the drama. Those section. are full-on definite no laughs dramas. <laughs> they are dramas. movies I've seen I I I've seen uh uh Woody Allen movies like many, many times. I've seen Another Woman. I enjoy his uh style so of of filmmaking yeah. his his brand of comedy 
but Another Woman and September are films I've seen only once. Really? Another Woman is so good. Uh, but yeah, it's, it, but, is, but... it is good, but it's like, it, it, it's a drama, man. But it's funny that he makes two dramas in a span of maybe two years, and that's enough to, for people to be like, he hasn't made a comedy in such a long time. Two years. This is a dude who makes a movie a year, sometimes two movies a year. And he takes a break from comedy for two years as an effort for everyone to be like, we need a comedy again. Why is he not making a comedy? He's like, two years goes by quick. <laughs> and then after this, he kind of, you know, goes back and forth between, after this, you have Crimes and Misdemeanors, which I think is a comedy. Alice, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a comedy. comedy. It's like, it's one of those, like, uh, like it's um, uh, yeah. like a sentiment. It's got a sentimental vibe to it, you know. And you have Shadows and Fog, which I've actually never seen, but it looks like a weird version that, of That's a comedy. A comedy. It, it's like he uses the the look, the black and white look of like a M, like yeah. German expressionist films. Husbands and Wives, which I guess is more of a drama than a comedy. It's yeah, leans into parts. drama. And then after that, it's comedy, comedy, comedy of Manhattan Murder Mystery, Bullets Over Broadway, Mighty Aphrodite, Everyone Says I Love You, Deconstructing Harry, Celebrity, Sweet Lowdown, Small Time Crooks. He doesn't get a drama again until Match Point. Match Point. 2005. So then if the people that complain that he didn't make a comedy, he gives them a solid 15 years of comedy <laughs> to make up for it. But anyways, this short is definitely a comedy. Uh, I think it's great. It reminds me very much of his short stories. If you ever read any of his short stories compilations, uh, yeah. without that, without feathers is one. Um, I, I did. I don't remember the names of the other ones, but it's uh, really, it's really silly. It's just, it's only in the name of fun. I think the only drawback is that there's definitely is gaps of of emotional connection between ca characters that seem lacking, like the way he quickly kind of throws Mia Farrow away just sort of like I feel like there's a few scenes missing there should have been like they're together yeah, and I, done with her and with Julie Kavner having seen this movie before I thought there was one I thought there was more stuff with his mother floating above there in the sky yeah and I thought that there was more time between when uh Mia Farrow left him because like she couldn't take being constantly scrutinized by his mother yeah. from up in the sky and then him uh, getting together with Julie Kavner. Uh, but that's, it feels like it happens in almost like the same day. <laughs> it happens so quick. You're just like, wait, what? I, they, I guess he didn't like her that much. And there's and not it, really a lot of, yeah, there's not as much of his mother up in the sky as I remembered. No. And I'm not sure that I want more of that. I'm not sure like how, how long you can stretch more. that gag out for. Yeah. But I feel this like there's is... something, there's, it feels like there's 10 minutes missing from it. Like it, like it shouldn't be a feature, but I wish it was a little longer. Like I feel like it's weird when he ditches Mia Farrow so quickly. And then yeah, it's just like, yeah, I feel like there needs to be, there's, there's, there's something missing. I still like it, but it feels like there's something not quite connecting all the moments together. Though I do love the scene when he realizes he loves Julie Kavner by looking at that drumstick of chicken and you can see like the congealed fat on it. And he's just like looking at it and he realizes that he loves her and he should be Yeah, he looks at the chicken like quite like romantically and like <laughs> is holding it above his head and he looks up at it like, like he wants to kiss, kiss the chicken um, leg. 
And I guess the lady who comes to his work with his mom was one of his actual teachers from like high school. Huh. And he hadn't seen her since high school. And I don't know if she came into for the part or whatever, but that, (laughs) and that's, that part is so good. These tiny little Jewish ladies showing up to his big high rise uh, office. Yeah. He gets called out of a meeting (laughs) and him just looking all like, Oh God, my mom. Like we saw cats, like cats, like Mr. Cats. (laughs) Like no, the Broadway play cat. Um, Did you notice that their daughter in this or the daughter that Mia Fair has in this? I think that's Kirsten Dunst. That is Kirsten Dunst. I did not notice it at the time. Um, She's, little she she's like tiny there's less i feel to talk about this segment than the scorsese one it's it's like the scorsese one is so rich and this, this one, one is just a really good comedy it's it's just a pure it's like one or two jokes and feel like it needed maybe a little bit more to work as a short film but there's definitely not enough here to work as a feature and i feel like uh alan knows that there's not there's not a whole lot he can do with just his mother being just up in the sky which is why we don't see her up up even though she is up there in the sky there's a lot of scenes where we we don't uh see her you think like you could like maybe hear her in the background but uh yeah i was kind of disappointed by that um This I I'm not sure how I feel about this one because like it made me laugh a lot and it made me laugh out loud, but it feels like yeah, just like one of his like short stories you would read and then move on <laughs> to the next one, or this is like a, a daydream that a character in one of his other movies would have. Yeah, like the animation daydream tangent in, in Annie Hall. Like, I, I could see why people were disappointed because some people were because it's not as rich as all the stuff he was making around this, which was like great, great, like, you know, like compare this to Hannah and Sisters or Crimes and Misdemeanors. Yeah, it's going to seem like insignificant. <laughs> but but I think if he hadn't made those, maybe people would just appreciate kind of the fun. The, the idea is really fun. The consensus was most people, if not all critics, like had good things to say about the Scorsese, about life lessons, uh, not good things to say about life without Zoe, about Coppola's. And they were mixed on on this one. Some people thought it was funny. Others thought it was just a, a like one joke that couldn't he couldn't sustain. Like uh, I think Gene Siskel said it was just like a, a sketch that uh, didn't really go anywhere. I don't know. Is there anything else to talk about this segment other than it was really funny? Um, I mean, the fact that you get at the very end of this, basically Marge Simpson talking to Betty Boop on a couch. That's That's an important moment. That's crazy. I I guess I would bring up that uh, Woody Allen is someone that uh, recycles a lot of themes and, uh, gimmicks and stuff and this whole um chinese disappearing box magic trick act thing is used again in magic in the moonlight and then he also uses <laughs> this box again in scoop scarlett johansson goes inside the box but it is magic and the ghost of ian mcshane appears to her and tells her about the murder that hugh jackman committed 
I like the idea that like when he gets writer's block, he's like, ah, I will pull out the old Chinese box magic <laughs> and that'll bridge whatever I need in the narrative. Yeah. You know? And uh, yeah, the whole like not not Asian, not Chinese magician doing this Chinese themed act uh, would you know not not be done that way today. <laughs> 1989 but, uh, was a different time. That's but, an actual but, magician, though. And that part was originally supposed to go to Wallace Shawn, which would have been great, you know, because Wallace yeah. Shawn is great. But instead, he hired this actual uh, magician. Yeah. And his name is his real name is George Schindler. Though seeing Wallace Shawn play a Chinese magician could have also been equally, uh, you know, something, <laughs> something, it would have been something. I don't know yeah. what it would be. <laughs> or if it would have been Asian, but just a tiny little. Uh, Wallace Shawn. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, I did want to bring up that uh, Larry David can barely hold it together in his scenes. Like you can see that he's like just starting to smile, like to crack up and break in his scenes. It's uh, I love it's funny. I love that Woody Allen was really into him because this is the time when he was just like a struggling stand-up comedian. You know, this is like long before, or not long before, a few years before the pilot of Seinfeld, like maybe two years before. So there's something clearly he liked about Larry David from working with him on Radio Days to keep working with him on this, to bring him back in a small part. But in my mind, it's like, oh, Larry should be this guy. And it's still a little, it's a tiny part, but it's very Larry David in a way. It's kind of like a neurotic about what's going on, what happened with this magic trick, what went wrong. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's fun to see young Larry David. To think of him as a quote unquote young man. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah, he, he is bald, but the hair he has, it stands Einstein. straight up. <laughs> yeah, like Einstein, like Brian Grazer, like a, like a, like a Triceratops. You know, the hair just stands straight up and it's dark. Not, yeah. Nothing wrong with being bald. No, embrace it. Embrace it. All right. And so the reason we're here, Francis Coppola's Life Without Zoe, in our last episode, or maybe I mentioned this on the terminal episode of The World is Wrong, that I remembered this being my favorite segment <laughs> but i couldn't remember what it was about yeah uh and having watched it now again i i have to say i mostly like it i'm kind of mixed or lukewarm on all of these stories including this one but I, this is the one that i feel like had the most potential to be like really good I wish it was longer because there is so much going on. And, and this is the shortest <clears throat> one. It's 30 minutes long. The yeah. others are like 40 minutes and 45 minutes. This but it has just, the most plot. <laughs> yeah, it has the most plot. It tries to cram in so much that I wish it was a feature length movie because it could have uh, really explored these different plot threads, plot lines it sets up and it could have built out some characters. But as it is, I think it has a good setup. It has a good premise, but then it tries to just go in so many different directions that you're just all this different stuff and these plots and characters get kind of thrown at you. Yeah. And, then the, and then the thing just, just kind of ends. Definitely mixed on this, 
<laughs> if, if we were Siskel and Ebert, I don't know where my thumb would be. My thumb would be down. This is the worst thing Coppola has ever made. Ever, ever? Ever. I hate it. I do not like it at all. And I don't mean to be negative. Yeah, I guess I do. <laughs> it's just, there's so many problems with this segment as a segment. There's so many problems with this segment being in this movie. I have, and I've always had a problem with it. And I feel most people do when you read or see the reviews of it. Like this is the one that everyone's like, fuck this segment. I hate it. Uh, one reviewer said it was the worst thing Coppola has ever done. I don't know who that was. There's I a lot, know. a lot of people have said that, but like, the yeah, thing was... is like it, it looks good. And uh, who, who, who was the DP on Vittorio Storaro? Yeah. So clearly it looks great. The idea seems cool. We're like, let's do an updated eighties version of an Eloise book. And those who don't know what that is, that is a, it was like a kid's book. Was that the 50s, the 60s? When did those come out? Like I don't remember. She lives in the Plaza Hotel in New York, which Plaza for you, you younger fans is the hotel where uh, Kevin McAllister cons his way into in Home Alone 2. Yeah. And, you know, is just a total dick. And, uh, you know, like <laughs> the staff is rightly suspicious of him. <laughs> Uh, uh, the that hotel sadly is not a hotel anymore. It's a bunch of condos. So boom. You couldn't have. And it's also the, the books that are again mentioned in the Sopranos between uh, Meadow and the mom. They go to they they put on their white gloves and they go underneath the, the painting and they, they it's all referencing Eloise. So this was like in my mind because this is written by Gal Corin by a sixteen year old Sofia Coppola. This is her entry into filmmaking like she was an actress uh, quote-unquote actress in her father's films that we've seen and we've talked about her little bit parts little tiny few lines here and there but this is the first time where she's actually making a movie she and wrote it she did the costumes and she designed the titles the title titles. sequence it has a cold opening where yeah. uh young Rosoe, uh heather mccomb narrates and gives us uh, like fairy tale version about the flute and yeah how like the at one time flute playing was yeah was outlawed because it like uh, made all the women uh be seduced by the spirits or something <laughs> and that she's named zoe because uh zoe means life in greek and then the uh the titles kick in and it's like that 80s squiggly colorful animation like <laughs> like uh that rem video shiny happy people i don't even know where to begin on this so i'll say Maybe you should go you go first with your positive thoughts on this okay and then i'll be the party pooper to to dump all over it i'll say which is fun which is fun because on my other podcast world is wrong we kind of try to keep it positive because we try to support movies and build them up and we're, we, and we're not allowed to be negative we are but we we kind of look at something interesting and anything but i feel in our show i i feel like i can take a vacation and shit all over a movie if i want <laughs> so um you be positive you be positive first this is not only i think this is not only the most coppola movie we've seen it, but it is also the most Sofia Coppola movie we've seen. 
Like every thing in Sofia Coppola's filmography can be found in this movie. And this movie is just like Coppola actually didn't really want to do this project. He mentioned in some interview or mentioned to someone like, I probably shouldn't do this, but okay. And so he decided to do what he does, of course, and just turn it into a family thing. And so he wrote it with Sophia and his father did the music and his father has a cameo in the film where he plays a, a, a street musician playing the flute. And he gets in a joke. What's the difference between a, a flutist and a flautist? About $50. There's a, in Zoe's narration, she says that uh, when she was a baby, like her father played her flute music and her mother's face was the first thing she ever saw. And you see her as a little baby. And that baby is Gia Coppola, yep. the, the daughter of his <laughs> late son, Gio, who has grown up to uh, make her own movies since yeah. and uh yeah and then it's got Vittorio Storaro, Dean Tavolaris does the production design of course edited by Barry Malkin it's like every buddy it's like just his family his work family and his real family if we're gonna do this thing and in the opening credits everyone is credited just with their first names and that's yeah. like the vibe of this it's yeah. like shot by Vittorio <laughs> Sets by Dean. Yeah, so it, this is a movie about, it's basically like a poor little rich girl story. And all the <laughs> reviews will mention how spoiled she is. She doesn't really act like spoiled or bratty, but she just has everything she wants at her beck and call. And yeah, it's about <laughs> a poor little rich girl that lives in a hotel. The people that are supposed to be close to her are gone most of the time. There is an, uh, a heist in this movie, like the Bling Ring. They have big parties, like in Marie Antoinette. There's a strained father-daughter relationship, like in Somewhere. And yeah, she lives in a hotel, like Lost in Translation, if I already didn't, uh, <laughs> didn't cover that. And I don't know if, we've, if I've said explicitly, this is a kid's story. This is like a family this film. This is G-rated. This is G-rated. It's like made for children or for parents to watch with their children and that is very strange (laughs) in the middle of of this whole film and especially coming after Scorsese's very adult story and Woody (laughs) Allen's like silly but still grown up you know comedy and then there's a family film imagine if I don't know there's like a horror anthology and then one of them in the middle of uh you know uh, an amicus film like tales from the crypt or tales from the hood there's like a, a goosebump story <laughs> but with no horror elements at all <laughs> yeah it, so that is strange and i liked it as as a kid's movie and that's why i, I say if if it could have had room to breathe then i think it would have been uh it would have been better um the other films are like the perfect length for those stories. Yeah. But this one, I think, would benefit from being longer. Um, the most lively thing in the movie is Don Novello <laughs> as, as the <laughs> family the butler. butler. And you start out, I think, the movie, because it's the very first thing, and one of the very first things she says is that her parents are away. So the butler, Hector, is her best friend. 
and basically looks after her and raises her. So you kind of expect what's going to be about her, like about their relationship, about their dynamic. But then he's actually, and he's so lively in his performance and he's so good, but then he's not really in it that much. And then she, the school and there's the, uh, the Arab boy who's the richest boy in the world. And she's got, uh, she runs like the school newspaper or the magazine. I really like that scene where she's with all her other rich girl friends. And it's like a mini eighties version of Clueless. And they're trying to put together the next edition of the, of the, I want to say magazine, because it's like they're putting together like a Vanity Fair or Cosmo or something. And so she interviews him and wants to help him make friends. And then there's the art. And then she goes back to the hotel and there's this heist, which is silly, but also still kind of scary. Like Chris <laughs> Elliott is waving a gun in her face. Chris Elliott is one of the robbers, which is yeah. weird. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of out of, it really feels out of nowhere. Like, okay, is the rest of it going to be about the heist? Kind of. <laughs> not, sort of, not really. Yeah. In a way, kind of. If it had focused on 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 just one or two of these threads, it would it would be it would be very good. Um, like when um, her mother shows up, when uh, Talia Shire shows up, and she's like mean. And then the next scene, they're very friendly. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, doesn't really connect. Yeah. Um, and then at the end, she gets her parents back together, but then they have to leave again. Her dad is needed in, in Greece. And then in Rome, the world has to hear his flute music. And it's like, oh, that's sad. And then she tells her mother like well i just happen to have like two first class tickets here to athens <laughs> and so they go and then they're all together as a family <laughs> in in athens and it's weird because like if she's sad that that her family can't be together and the solution was like oh well i can just buy plane tickets <laughs> and <we'll> go <laughs> all right now may i go through my list of why <laughs> major problems with this short okay i i may have some of the same problems all right uh, i feel like more positive stuff for me may come up sure so and i'm a positive guy you know me uh but yeah. this this part just sticks out like a sore thumb it doesn't fit in with this movie at all like spielberg who also wouldn't have made sense for this movie maybe would have been better though i don't know his part of the twilight zone movie is the worst part of that movie so maybe it also would have been equally bad but like I think first off, it's just it's weird to go with Coppola for a movie about New York because he's not a New York guy. Sure, Godfather takes place in New York, but he's a California guy. He grew like he grew up yeah. in New York and then moved to California, moved to California and became a West Coast guy. And a very West Coast guy. And he's like George, like like hang out with George Lucas and like you, like you are not a I don't think he's in of him as a New York filmmaker. And I think that. It's weird to think that a Sydney that uh, that uh, Mike Nichols or um, Bob, Bob Fosse would made a thing similar to Scorsese because I don't see their movies. Definitely Mike Nichols, nowhere near what a Scorsese would have done, and I think it would have been good. I'm, my guess is Mike Nichols' segment would have been about a woman, which would have been, you know, interesting. 
uh, like an older woman probably because like at the time he was doing what Working Girl was around this time. Working Girl, I think, uh, was the same year or the next year. And, yeah, <laughs> and, that's and so one. the guy with Coppola is very strange because he is not. This is a guy who hangs out in vineyards in California. He's not in New York. They could have gone with a Sidney Lumet, Sidney Lumet, or more interesting. Why not go with Spike Lee, right? Like Spike Lee had had She's Gotta Have It. I think School Days maybe was out by this time. So you have an up-and-coming African-American, New York, very New York filmmaker that could have made it. Jim Jarmusch, already making a scene in the indie world, like very New York. So the go with Coppola is odd. Already right off the bat. That's just strange to put that in a movie that's supposed to be about New York. And then... The fact that, like you said, this is a G-rated movie in the middle of this grown-up film. And in my mind, when Woody Allen and Scorsese saw this, they're like, oh, God, what did, what did, what did Francis do? Like, no, <laughs> like, where, where do we put this? I guess we put it in the middle because you don't want to start or end with this because it just feels so ill-fitting. Like, what grown-up? Because this is a movie for grown-ups. No kid is rushing to see the new anthology film by Scorsese, Woody Allen, and Francis Ford Coppola in the late 80s. Like, this is a movie for grown-ups. This is an art house film, or this is for the sophisticated film-goer, you know? And they're not going to sit through 30 minutes of some kids, some silly kids movie in the middle. Like, it, it, you have to suffer through it, which I did every time I've watched this movie. And... I get, and like, I respect that Coppola, as always, is doing something or figuring out a way to be very personal and including his family. And clearly he loves his family and puts them all in here like he always does. But I think it's the same problem that we're going to talk about with the original version, at least, of Godfather 3, is that he's such a loving dad that he's kind of blinded to the problems that are with including your daughter and maybe where she's at skill-wise as a writer or actress in Godfather 3. You can love your daughter, great. All dads should. But like, I feel like he doesn't, as a director, filmmaker, maybe should have seen some of the problems with this script. Like it's, it's really charming and adorable that you want to write a script with your daughter and make her into like a screenwriter. But like, I really hate the, the character in this movie. Like I really hate her. She comes to me, she does come off as a spoiled rich person. And maybe that wasn't apparent because this is a movie made by a 16 year old who's only ever known what it's like to be rich and to live in a rich family. And I feel later on as a filmmaker, she's able to kind of like understand more what that means in a more, uh, in a way where you can kind of like see the problems in that. But with this, it's just it's just weird. It just it feels like it reminds me of the joke, and I don't know what I've seen it in, of like the rich stand-up comedian being like, "Do you remember? You know when you do this or that?" They're talking about some rich person thing that no one can relate to, and everyone's like, "No, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about." Like, don't you hate it when you go to the grocery store and like you're trying to buy, you know, like your butler is buying you a thing at the grocery store, and they come home, they don't get it's like no one can relate to that. And so it's just like this weird, unrelatable story about rich people. And like, just, it's, it's like, it's, yeah, I don't know. Just like, it's just like her, like with her relationship with like the homeless guy feels very problematic where it's like, 
I don't you hate it when you're with your friends in your costumes and some hobos bothering you? Oh, I hate that. Oh, I know. I'll just I'll give I'll give him some chocolate. Isn't it adorable? I'll promise him candy and I'll bring him candy back the next day. And it's like well, she 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 told the homeless guy she would bring him candy back the next day, <laughs> and then and then she it, remembered and she did. She followed up on that. It, it just I don't know. I think like his love is his daughter. Blindsided that they, they come off as kind of snobby, and it just comes off as kind of weird of just like, and especially in that part when she gives the fable about the bunny rabbit, that's such a fucked up idea. That story. The story is. There's this rabbit who didn't have any friends. And so he has all these great things. And then all the other rabbits who don't have those great things see these great things and want to be a part of this rabbit's life. So they then hop over the fence to be with the rabbit. What kind of life lesson is that? So like they get Not friends what Nick have Nolte's to have giving. nice things. What? Not what Nick Nolte's giving. I know, right? It's not, so like so you're supposed to be rich and have great things for people to like you or that's how you get friends or like, that's who you're going to, it's just, it's just kind of just something gross and weird about that. Or like the scene at the beginning when she's asking the doorman or wherever that guy is for the money, the cash for her spending for that day. And it just feels like so, like this movie is made by aliens and those aliens are of course rich people. And like you said, like the solution of buying a first class ticket is the solution to their, like, why didn't they do that to begin with? Why couldn't she have been with her dad always then? If this was all he needed to do, was be like, well, I'm rich. I'll reach in the my gold couch and pull out a million dollars to buy, buy fucking first class tickets. Like, God, I just I hate it. <laughs> Maybe it's just my anti capitalist uh, ways. I don't know, but. Uh, <laughs> Feel like I I maybe forgive a lot of this like the scene of her yeah getting her her cash from the cashier for her spending for the day. <laughs> like I guess I can forgive it because it is so like. It's so weird that like a, a 12 year old is a 10 or 12 year old is doing this. And it's like a it's a like a fable. Like, yeah, like a rich kid wrote this story. Like to them, it's not weird to them. It's like, you know, on Tuesdays when you go to the guy in your apartment and he gives you a you thousand know, dollars in cash for your you know, your daily spending money. It just it just a whole short kind of rings of that of like, I just don't. And it feels very white. It's just weird. Where like it's weird that her and her friends don't know what a turban is. Like they see that. Like they, they see the kids' uh, assistant, security guard, with a turban. They're like, "What's that thing on his head?" It's like, "You're fucking twelve. You don't know what a turban is." Like, how ignorant are you? Like, it, they, like there's a lot of just like weird. Just I don't know. There's just stuff that it bothers me just on a uh, moral level. I guess. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, the all the stuff with the the Arab kid, like his accent and the uh, his like mystical aunt, like it, she's not magical, but there's just this like mystical vibe to her. Yeah, uh, that stuff would all be handled differently. And their Arabian Nights themed party where everyone's dressed up <laughs> like uh, like a lad, like you know characters from Aladdin. Uh, yeah, it makes be, it all exotic in a way that you're not supposed to. It's not like outright uh, offensive. It, there would just there would just definitely be a different approach approach to it today. Yeah. It's um, it's really weird that this exists in the middle. It's really crazy that this movie's PG. I mean, this really? part's PG. This part's G. 
This is a PG movie. And which doesn't make any sense to me because the Scorsese segment is an R-rated. <laughs> that's an R-rated movie. If there was 40 more minutes of that movie and it wasn't any more uh, shocking than what was already in that 40 minutes, that's an R-rated movie. Like Rosanna Arquette is practically naked in that one part where she has her shirt open with nothing underneath and is wearing her underwear. That is a lot more jarring than if she had actually been naked. Right? Yeah. yeah. You're just like, wow. And and like the Woody Allen part, sure, the Woody Allen part's PG. That's a PG part. And this part's G. But like Scorsese, just because Scorsese's involved at all makes it R-rated. <laughs> and it's just weird to make people watch a G-rated movie in the middle of this movie. It's wrongfully rated PG. I think it's also, it's interesting. Like, let's look at Coppola in this era. We've, you know, people who've been following our show will get it. But it's weird to get Coppola because, in my opinion, it's not really a get. You're not really succeeding if you get Coppola here, you know? Not, because, not at this like, point in his career. Yeah, you're right. Like, like, sure, Tucker, which we did, he did right before this in 88, was fine and it did okay. But it's it, not like, it, it, he's not on the same trajectory as, like, Woody Allen and Scorsese. Like, Woody Allen's there. He is, like, at the top. And Scorsese is just rising. And Coppola is still doing this sort of up and down, mostly down sort of... Yeah, like, Tucker was... uh, It got good reviews and... Oscar uh, nominations. Oscar nominations, but it did not do well financially. No. And so to, like, get him for this is is also weird and it's not a real get. Maybe it would have been interesting to throw in a Bergman or Fellini here in the middle. Like make makes people watch a subtitle thing in the middle of this not subtitle movie. Did you notice that in the robbery scene, somebody's, the, they're reading a Robert Duvall book or a book about Robert Duvall or what is that? I did not know. On the spine that. it says Robert Duvall. Like it's like a bio about Robert Duvall, who of course has been in many couple movies. That was odd. Um, also, watching this, I couldn't help but think about Wes Anderson for some reason. I don't know why. Because it's whimsy. It's whimsical. It's whimsy. It's colorful. It's also about rich people, which this stuff tends to be about. Um, it's um, like the, 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 the things, I guess, I really respond to positively. And I'm not positive all the way through, um, you, just to make, make that point clear. But the stuff I really respond to is like the 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 whimsy of it. Like this is like a fable fairy tale, like Wes Anderson's Royal Tenenbaums, which takes place yeah. in a New York that isn't really New York. It's not really recognizable. It's about yeah. this rich genius family that's totally unrelatable, except in how odd they are. That's what draws you in. Did somewhere in here, Adrian Brody? is in this part. I couldn't find him. I did not find him either. It's like his first screen credit. He plays someone named Mel. So it's uh, someone with a name. But I have no idea. If anyone out there knows where he is, please tell us, because I could not figure it out at all. Um, (laughs) As much as I hate this part, I do think that if Sofia Coppola had made this as a filmmaker, like post when she became a like Virgin Suicides director, I think that would have been a good movie. Like if this was done in the style that is her style of the more of a hangout feel, like the long shots, more non-narrative, more artistic, more of that kind of hangout 
movie that she does. I think that would have been a better movie. If you're like, and I, I feel that would actually be great if she did it now. If she did Life Without Zoe now as a feature, that would have been, that would be amazing. I, yeah, that I want to see this. Movie I want to see this as a longer movie. Thinking about, kind of like, because her style is very different than her father's. She does a lot of long shots. She does a lot of like time passing in, in, a, in a scene. And I think if you made that about a bored kid living in a building in New York, even have it take place in the 80s, why not? Done in her style, directed by her, that would be a great movie. I mean, in a way, I guess that's what Lost in Translation is. It's the yeah. Star Joe alone in, in the giant skyscraper in Tokyo rich you know abandoned by her husband you know like just like left alone while the husband's off working and just going about going to parties and meeting people you know but i feel like i think that would be great like i think as much as it doesn't work here as a coppola movie i feel it would very much work as a sophia coppola film i feel like and yeah i mean i know i'm repeating myself but like it's just if this had had more time to, to breathe and you know you could build up Zoe as maybe like um, like share and clueless how like she she you know is a she's this rich girl but has a a moral compass of sorts like she's vapid but she knows that she's supposed to be doing good things like she wants to help this boy make friends she wants to get her parents back together again. But is a little bit uh, a little bit ditzy about how to actually go about these things. I think I think modern Coppola, Sofia Coppola, would have added the layer of sort of like at least the audience knowing that the filmmaker knows that there's awareness that there's a problem with a lot of this stuff. In a way, I don't know. Yeah. maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I no, I I feel like like, like you I, you get some sort of subtext of like. Yeah, like this is how her life is, but this is strange, or there's a problem here, or this is like there's like you know like I feel like a more grown up Sophia Coppola would add that layer to it. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe she would still think this is normal, right? This is life. This is what child is like. I don't know. I've never no, been I, rich. So I've no I, idea. I agree because <laughs> that's how I feel about her most recent film, On the Rocks, which is my absolute favorite film of last year. Uh which is about a woman aware, like trapped by her privilege, but aware of her privilege and knowing that this should, she should be happy. She should be fine with where she is with her circumstances, but isn't, which just like Marie Antoinette and Scarlett Johansson in Lost in Translation. And so, yeah, there, there is an awareness of that. And that just feeds back into whatever neuroses the character is experiencing so they have to deal with that along with the actual problem of you know they have a a marriage that that isn't working out which i guess is the theme in, in all of those films yeah that's the theme in all of these films too i guess if they had a if there was a through line that's about well nick nolte and rosanna aren't married but that's of relationship zoe's parents are in a troubled relationship woody allen is you know has has the wrong fiance in, in <laughs> his segment yeah yeah hmm. i feel like only because we have we're, we're doing a podcast on the films of francis coppola 
is the only reason why we have talked about life with Zoe for as long as we have. <laughs> it's so dismissed by like anyone when you watch like the Siskel Niebert segment on this, which I did last night, they brush through it so quickly. They have so much more to say about the other two than they do about this. Um, and they both love the Scorsese one. Don't like the Woody Allen one, really. They consider it a misfire, but give it like an A for effort, but a C minus in terms of the thing. And then they both hate the Coppola one. Uh, Ebert refers to it as a student film. He says this feels like a student film. Wow. To him, that's a knock, I guess, to say that it's a student film. So interesting enough, he refers to Woody Allen as a little nerd. <laughs> when talking about this segment, he's like, why are we thinking about this little nerd? It's like, because his beef with Oedip- Oedipus Rex is that why isn't about all of New York reacting to this lady in the sky? Why is it just about this little nerd's reaction? <laughs> so referring to Woody Allen as a little nerd is amusing. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Ebert's problem with with Oedipus Rex that it doesn't focus on what do other New Yorkers think about this is it's a weird complaint. Like it's it's always it's weird ridiculous. when a critic complains like, about a movie that it's not. Where it's like, well, but that's not what it is. So you got to review what it is. Like it's strange, and that's a problem. As much as I love Ebert, I feel that's a problem he's had before. Where I've seen him complain about what the movie should have been as opposed to what it is. And it's like, but you can't review the movie that it's not. Review the movie that it is. Like, that's a different movie. It's a movie about 8 million people's reaction to a giant old Jewish lady appearing in the sky as opposed to a focused movie about a character dealing with that because it's his mom. That's a different movie. (laughs) Maybe Roland Emmerich could have made (laughs) a movie about all of New York dealing with the catastrophe of a giant lady showing uh, pictures of her child over in New York City. Um. <laughs> yeah, so because Life Without Zoe is a kid's movie and I watch a lot of kid stuff these days and I try to watch good kid stuff, but it's, it, it's hard, it's hard. So much of it is just not good. It's like, and it starts out good. And I'm thinking like, this is the kind of like kids things that I would want to see with my kids where it's like really well made and focused and then it loses focus yeah well when it ended when this segment ended i was like wait that's the end because i kind of missed that they wrapped it all up like she gets this earring that her dad was given by a fan who ended up being like this 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 princess or something in this arab relationship yeah she's she's the the, the sheik's wife loved that his Flute playing so much that she gave him one of her earrings as a gift, but now, like the the sheik or the sheikh, because that that's a joke in the movie is as pronounced sheikh, but people keep saying sheikh. The sheikh, uh, you know, is like jealous, and and the uh, the flautist wife thinks that that he's having an affair, so Zoe has to get the earring back to the sheik's wife via this uh, costume party that she decides to have. And it's a costume party just because it's kids and they want to like wear fancy costumes. They want to wear fancy dress costumes. It's like, it, it, it makes sense. Like if you write it out, it makes sense and it, and it connects. 
but because it's shoved into 30 minutes and even really it's shoved into like 10 minutes because the scenes at the beginning with her and Don Novello and just her narration and even her, like her in school and the kids putting the magazine together. Like that stuff is good. That stuff is really good, I think. And then it, it unwinds into nothingness. Yeah. There's too many, too many threads. Her, her and her mom, like her and Talia Shire make up so quickly. It doesn't really make sense. Like they're not getting along and then they are and they just go to France to see their dad or whatever and it's just over. It's like if they could, if they could, and, and it doesn't happen in this film, but I can see how if, a, and I mean, Sophia's like, yeah, 16, 17 when she's writing this and how to a kid, like you can be so mad at your parents and you think your parents are so mad at you like one instant yeah. and then 30 it's minutes fun. later, it's all gone and yeah. you know you love each other teenager and, logic yeah it's just like and like <laughs> yeah and like so logic. my mom was mad at me and then you know blah 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 and then and now you know now we're reading stories together and now we're having tea together and that makes sense to uh to a kid but yeah there's not that not of the uh the filmmaker's self-awareness or the film make the film doesn't make you aware of things yeah. that like you were saying probably a more mature adult Sofia Coppola would make you aware of that the film knows these things, even though this the character does not. This is why children should never be allowed to make anything. Yeah. <laughs> They're not there yet. Get away that, that show Kid Bye. Nation where kids like it was <laughs> going to be kids that build a society on their own. You know, didn't last. It got canceled. Yeah, kids are morons. They don't know what's going on. Uh, it's worth noting the princess is played by, I'm going to say her name totally wrong, Carol Bouquet, who you may recognize as Bond Girl from For Your Eyes Only. She's the main Bond girl in For Your Eyes oh. Only. Uh, and then I think it's worth pointing out, too, that Giancarlo Giannini, who plays the, fa the flautist father, incredibly handsome. And after just watching Only Murders Left in the Building, it's interesting that Nathan Lane is now looking like him. So I guess that makes <laughs> that makes Nathan Lane the handsomest man alive in 2022. So congratulations, Nathan Lane. There's something about that little mustache and that slick back hair just uh, gets me moving. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> So I, I feel like as a whole, as is like most anthology movies, it doesn't quite gel. It doesn't quite work. But like with also every anthology movie, it's worth watching because there's great stuff in it. Is there a perfect anthology movie? No. Isn't there always one or two filmmakers who kind of derail it? No, even it? like even Tales from the Hood is, you know, uneven. Um, is that the same director or like the ones where it's like different filmmakers doing things like four rooms for example four rooms a movie i really love half that movie's great half that movie is not great uh like the robert rodriguez one surprisingly is the best part of that movie and i really yeah. like the tarantino one and then the alexander rockwell and Elsa and enters search are just not as good as those two or um, I don't know. I just feel like whenever you get the omnibus film where it's a bunch of filmmakers doing stuff, 
there's always one or two who does their own thing, which is great, but then it doesn't gel. It doesn't really work. Because <laughs> it's not like a short film compilation you'd see at a film festival that is well curated and someone actually watches them and thinks, what's going to work well together? Like with something like New York Stories, my mind, they gave the budget to each of these directors and they went off and made their thing and then they came back and then they had to just kind of fit together what they had. I don't think it was like, I mean, that is okay, the three scripts and let's make these three scripts work together. And how does it like, like, I feel it feels like they're doing their thing and then you have to make it work. You have to make it fit. Yeah, that is exactly how this was made because each of these three films has their own credit sequence. Their own producers. And their own producers, their own crew, like with Scorsese. And it's interesting to see like the collaborators that like they had to bring along, even for this just little like this little short film. Like Scorsese is like, well, I've I've got to have Thelma Schoonmaker edit it. Like, yeah, yeah like I'm I'm not gonna not have Thelma edit my film. And Coppola, of course, works with his whole family, but brings back Dean Tavolaris, a name we've seen on every Coppola movie. And he brings back Vittorio Storaro, which is why this film looks as good as it does. And yeah. it's interesting with Woody Allen, the what name, I mean, he was making everything with Mia Farrow uh, at this point in his career. But the what name I picked up was uh, like, and casting by, yep, Juliet Taylor, check. I know, like, I feel like when I see that name on screen, I'm like, how, do I know that person personally? I know that person so well. It's like, oh, you were the Cassie person in every Woody Allen movie since Love and Death. Like, yeah. And she had an easy job on this. Like, okay, so I got to call two people. Okay. Your wife and Julie Kavner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also casting director for uh, Mike Nichols. And yeah. she's worked with, with Woody Allen all the way through Cafe Society. So all the way till 2016. Wow. Clearly he trusts her. So a lot of his movies are like, let's bring <laughs> my friend, let's bring Walter Sean back, you know. But uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I, I feel like this movie, if I were to like, I would give it ultimately a thumbs up because I do like this movie. I've seen this movie a lot. For some reason in my lifetime, I've seen this movie quite a bit. I don't know why I always go back to it. Maybe because I like the Scorsese bit so much. Is it my favorite omnibus anthology movie? No, it's not. But I do like it. I do watch. I I will watch this movie again, and I will watch this movie again. Like this is a movie that I will see throughout my life. I'll have a hankering to watch a New York Stories, and I will sit through the whole thing every time. I I guess I guess I'm I'm in the same boat as you. Overall, would I recommend this? I would say yes, because there is there is enough good stuff throughout. And like, yeah, like the Scorsese one, I guess for me is the best one by default, because even though I don't care for the subject matter, it's so well made. It's so the filmmaking is so strong. It's, it's, so, it's so, so damn well made. Strong. It's you're yeah. watching a filmmaker at the top of their form in a fucking short film. Yeah. And it's not yeah. like he's like really experimenting. Like I've never like moved the camera around. I've never like done, you know, uh, like flourishes like Irish shots before. I actually don't know if he had used an Irish shot before, but it seems like the kind of thing he think so. would have done. Um, yeah, he's just doing it all like really well. Yeah. 
just so well. And like, yeah, like the initial approach to life without Zoe is is really good. And the jokes, a lot of the jokes on the Oedipus Rex work. Yeah. 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 I think it's a satisfying movie overall. I think if you watch this movie, you will not be sad. You will not be sorry. I, I can see how people who paid to go see this in a theater may have been dissatisfied, unsatisfied with you know the overall thing. This movie did not do well financially at the box office. But I mean, I feel like any anthology film should only play like <laughs> it should be like uh, you know, even though this is like a derogatory thing, like direct to video, direct to cable, like they or now it's just be like a Netflix Hulu streaming thing. Because yeah, you don't know what you're gonna get with a it's horror anthology. It's always a gamble. In I said horror anthology. Always a gamble. Always. Because most anthology uh, movies are poor anthologies, at least the ones I watch. But yeah, it's always <laughs> a gamble. And none of them are going to be like they're not all going to be great even if they're all good there's going to be one that's not as good as the rest so it's and then it's going to throw off the rhythm of the film um what is your favorite anthology movie like what is the one that you like or the omnibus one not anthology but the one with a bunch of different directors like what's the one that you think oh different directors i don't know because like there's uh, anthology movies where it's one director telling a bunch of stories, I feel that's a different thing because there is a level of coherence there, you know. Yeah. It's the same person doing, like like the French Dispatch or whatever. Like when you have a director that's like a bunch of shorts, that's like a short stories collection. But when you have a bunch of different directors, whether it's a VHS or um, you know one of those movies like 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 Spirit, like what's the one Spirits of the Dead or whatever you said it was called, the one that. The, yeah, you know, spirits of the dead. Those, uh, that that's when you get like it's it's a more it's a problem because you're gonna always have some wild card that throws it off. Um, for me, my favorite is is uh, Aria. Is that how you say it? A R I A opera. Yeah, Aria, like like yeah, Aria. the opera. Yeah, that movie is is so good. Like, have you ever seen that movie? No, I've never seen this. So that that is an omnibus film. Um, it's all based on, obviously, opera, operas. It's ten films uh, set to arias, areas. Every say it. I'm not sophisticated. By ten different directors. You have a really good. Cl- you have Altman, Bruce Beresford, Jean Luc Godard, Derek Jarman, Nicholas Roque, Ken Russell, Julian Temple, and a few others that I, I'm familiar with. So it's all opera, but it's really good and it's really beautiful. And the Godard segment is one of the is one of the best things I've ever seen. It's so good. <laughs> as much as he thinks Life Lessons is his favorite short film, I feel this segment is one of my favorite short films. And that I feel is a really great fun uh, omnibus film. Um, it came out in 1987, two years before this one. And yeah, I think people should check that out. It's uh, Buck Henry's in it. Beverly D'Angelo is in it. Elizabeth, a young Elizabeth Hurley. Bridget Fonda's in it in one of the best segments. Um, Tilda Swinton, a young Tilda Swinton, John Hurt. 
Um, it's just a really weird, great omnibus film. And I feel that's one where I really, I think I like every segment of it. That's my favorite one. I guess my favorite omnibus film is, and it seems like the easy choice, but Paris Tem. Mm, very good. With that is like, very good. Yeah, like something like 20 short films, like one for each of the uh, the neighborhoods, the arrondissements of yeah. Paris. And I feel like there are, and Nick Nolte's in that one too. I think he's in the segment directed by Alfonso Cuaron. Uh, but, and Steve Buscemi's in it too, in the one directed the by Coen Brothers. Brothers. Like, which is really good. It takes yeah. place in the subway. Yeah, that one's good. That one's funny. And I feel like those are those are so varied but they're so short that if yeah. you don't really like one, then it's over and you're on to the next one. The the Alexander Payne segment of that one is so good. That's my favorite. That one is good. That's the final one. And it's the perfect one to end on. And uh, yeah, it's it strikes the right note of this like uh, like wistful like you know there, there there's joy but also there there's uh, drama and some sadness there and it's uh, uh and then the film ends with like a, a montage of the the characters you you've seen throughout the yeah. films i watch a lot of horror anthologies because it's one of my favorite kind of horror films but a lot of those are by the same filmmaker my favorite one is uh is Kwaidan, Japanese film uh from 1965 mm -hmm. directed by uh Kobayashi by uh, Mas yes. Masaki Kobayashi that one is great but it's all it's all him uh yeah all one director one vision even though the stories are different I really like uh Inside Out which there are four of they were like four I don't know if they were considered TV seasons or movies, but they were, it was released by Playboy. It was on the Playboy channel. Huh. And uh, there's four of them. I own all four. And it's an omnibus thing. It's all like erotic-based short things. But again, there's one by Alexander Payne, which is brilliant. Antoine Fuqua does one. And that's really good. And those are hard to come by, but those are worth seeing. They were released as features on video. I don't know huh. if that's how it's shown on TV. But Inside Out is another one worth uh, checking out. Well, that's um, not the kind of Playboy TV produced film where it's someone that's like, I'm going to tell you this very sexy story. And then it's, <laughs> it's, uh, the, it's the sex, the softcore sex scenes from another film. <laughs> no, these are all original shorts and it's really arty and it's great. And I don't know if it was trying to be at the same time as Red Shoe Diaries, because Red Shoe Diaries kind of plays like that, where like oh, Red yeah, Shoe Diaries yeah. was a half hour every week. That was, was that HBO? I think. That was Showtime. Showtime. And that was like its own little story by a different director. And those were released kind of as omnibuses on VHS back in the day. But this, it's different because it's, it's Playboy and it's got sexy stuff in it, but it's very, it's better than Red Shoe Diaries. It's more artistic. It's more fun. Like the Alexander Payne one feels so much like an Alexander Payne thing. And this is like 1993 or whatever before he even made a, his first feature, but his style is so there. Um, those are worth seeking out. I highly recommend the Inside Out one through four. All right. We've run long, I think. 
Look, let me look at my wine bottle. Yeah, we've run long. But we had to cover three movies, basically. Yeah, it's really, it's three films. And maybe if this was an anthology, if we were talking about the French Dispatch, we wouldn't have talked so long because there's, we have three different filmmaking styles to talk about. Yeah. Three different approaches. Yeah. And I, I feel like Coppola's might be the only one that was really New York to me. Really? Yeah, like, I mean, as New York as Woody Allen and Scorsese are, I feel like those stories could have taken place in any city. Yeah, I I guess. I, don't know. I, I guess the Coppola one could have taken place in any city either. With rich people live in a building. Like, the yeah. Scorsese one to me feels so New York of that kind of artist living in, like, a big-ass loft. Like, that kind of artist doesn't exist in Seattle, you know, or L.A., I don't think. Like, that kind of 80s artist and then being able to go downstairs and go to a fancy art show i don't know I, I to me that feels new york and maybe woody allen feels new york just because of the jewishness of it and just sort of i don't know just because woody allen is so new york maybe that's why because to me i would say the couple ones feels the least new york because it is <laughs> just about rich people and those people have the same problems everywhere which is you know how do I get the same amount of money from whoever in the morning to go pay for whatever? I don't know. I don't know. That's just me. But uh, <laughs> uh, well, I'm excited for our next episode because finally we are getting to the conclusion of the Godfather saga, Godfather 3. And we will also be uh, talking about Coppola's re- yeah do director's cut uh oh god what's it called like uh the godfather coda or something like that the godfather coda the death of michael corleone yeah yeah much Uh, longer to say than godfather three so i already (laughs) am i'm suspicious already just (laughs) because i have to say more words which i don't like yeah so we will be discussing just like we did with apocalypse now with uh godfather's saga the tv version we're gonna watch both versions of the film and whatever special features are included and uh discuss all of them yeah so it may it'll be funny if that episode not as long as the new york stories episode this episode's (laughs) already longer than the movie new york stories but that's okay that's fine (laughs) but i think godfather 3 and I know it's been a long gap between our episodes, but I have a feeling we'll get to Godfather 3 sooner. Uh, I'm really, really excited to jump into that. Like, I'm going to watch that ASAP. I'm pumped. I'm excited, too, because I've I, I've had that Godfather Coda uh, Blu-ray for a while. I've been uh, itching to get to get into it. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I mean, at the at the very least, it will we'll take our usual amount of time between episodes which <laughs> be another be, month and a half okay yeah. but so we've got a lot March. to watch we've got a lot to watch i think we will get our next episode out in in february i think so too like i i can't tell you how i'm excited to watch god for three i don't know why i am maybe because it's been a while it's been a spell i've owned it for a while and I've been holding off knowing we're going to cover it so i'm re- i think also because godfather one and two came out so close together and we watched them within a few months. 
then I was ready to go to part three, but then I had to wait through, you know, 10 other movies or whatever to yeah. get there. So now, now we're finally, we're finally, we're in the 90s, AJ. We're going to, to 1990, which is crazy. Oh, one thing before we go, I did want to mention I, that this Life Without Zoe is the first contemporary set Coppola film since One from the Heart. Oh, wow. Everything else was a period piece between then. Well, wouldn't you count part of Peggy Sue Got Married? Ah, okay. The present day part? I guess the, like yeah, the, the present day part that, took, was in the present day. day. But most of it is in 1960. And one from the heart True. even because it's like, because of its artifice, it's, uh, you know, the way it's staged feels like it takes place out of time. So True. I feel like really this is the most like concrete, conversation. Yeah, since conversation. the conversation, this is the most like definitely this takes place in the present day, you know, real world. And when will we get one again, Jack? Because Godfather Three is it, and neither is Bram Stoker. Neither is Dracula. Yeah, so not till Jack. Uh, I have no idea back. when Godfather Three takes place. I have no clue in my mind. It was 1990, but I'm in my guessing it's the 60s. I think it's in the. I think it takes place in the 70s. Well, we'll see. Yeah. Either way, Andy Garcia is pretending to be Italian. So whatever it is, it's you know a little. Funny. That's how Hispanics got work in movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm excited to get into it. And uh, so, where where can they reach us? Where can they reach you? What? Uh, so uh, you can reach us direct at uh, directorswall at gmail dot com. Uh, we're on Twitter at directorswall. Uh, you can uh, read. We're coming up on Oscar season, so I will be actually posting on my blog. You can read stuff at uh, cinemathenandnow.blogspot.com. Uh, follow me on Letterboxd, um, uh, AJGO85, I think. It's yep. whatever, my, whatever my Twitter handle is, and I'm on Letterboxd <laughs> there. And uh, Brian, where can we find you? Where else can we find you? Well, we have the Director's World does have an Instagram page. Not a lot of you are on there. It would be great if you were. I maybe heard from you, which would be great. I'm on Instagram. It's the only social media I do, regretfully, but I do it for now. Uh, I also co-host another show called The World is Wrong with my good friend Andros Jones. Uh, he will be our guest when we get to the Coppola episode of The Rainmaker because he's a big fan of that. So he'll be here. But you can hear AJ is a guest on many episodes. We're, I'm excited because we're coming up on our Noscars episode in about a month, month and a half. And you were definitely included on that where we have our own awards for movies that had not, they did not get a single Oscar nomination. Uh, yeah. So I'm looking uh, forward to I'm it. Like, me too. Uh, it's my favorite time of the year now, even though we've only done it once. <laughs> it's my well, favorite. Yeah. yeah it, it, it's, it's great. We, we, we get to sing, sing the unsung films, yeah. which is what you do on, on the world is wrong. Give a, a different insight to films that have been otherwise dismissed. Yes. So yeah, that's that's kind of where you can find me in the in the world right now. All right. And uh, we'll all meet together again with the Corleone family. See what the hell what the hell they're up to. Still in New York. <laughs> <laughs> or Godfather Three. Yeah.